0: Good morning, can you hear me okay? This morning we're going to continue our study of the prophecy of Haggai by examining the first nine chapters, excuse me, the first nine verses of chapter two. You've probably noticed that I don't always title my messages and I'm sorry Bob isn't here to hear this. But if Bob were p- preaching on this passage, he would probably title it something like a whole lot of shaking going on." Um, if I were going to title this message, I would choose something much more tame, like "The Day of Small Beginnings." These nine short verses will carry us from the distant past to what was the distant future in Haggai's day and what is, in fact, still the future even in our time. This message spans the temple sequence from the days of Solomon's temple through the days of the second temple and all the way to the millennial temple that will be on earth when God reestablishes the kingdom of Israel under the reign of Christ in the future. It spans God's working with mankind from the time of Blessing Solomon to the time of disciplining Israel to the future day of the tribulation in which the unbelievers of the earth will experience miraculous divine judgment even as God stands up to deliver his people Israel and all who follow him in faith. There's a lot packed into these short nine verses. Let's once again ask the Lord's help as we turn to his word. Father, we are so privileged to be granted a glimpse into your ways, into your plans. Thank you for your word. May your spirit, who is the agent in bringing it it to us, illuminate our thinking and teach us. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, as we usually do, I'd like to get an overview of the passage before we look at the details. Let's first consider the setting and time and then look at the structure of the passage. Now, the setting and time here is not difficult to see at all. According to chapter 1, verse 15, it was on September 21st in the year 520 BC that the people had come... And gathered and resumed the work on the temple. Chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that the message we're going to look at today was delivered by Haggai about four weeks later. Once again, Haggai starts by telling us that the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Once again, Haggai reminds us that he is only the messenger and God is the speaker. Now, the structure of this message is really very simple. God structures it first by reflecting on the past, facing the present, and anticipating the future. Now, the discussion of the past is found in verses 1 through 3, if you'll look there. Here, God calls the people's attention to the memories of Solomon's temple that some of the elderly people in the group still carry. And here God gives voice to what everybody was thinking, but no one was saying. Our temple will never be anything but pitiful compared to Solomon's temple. Now, in verses 4 and 5, God calls the people to be strong and to work in the present. The essence of his message here is this. Fear nothing. For I am with you, just as I was with those who served me in the past. Now, finally, in verses 6 through 9, God gives a further reason why the people should not be discouraged. And he does this by anticipating the future. The essence of this part of God's message is this. A great day is coming in which I will judge your oppressors and restore glory to my temple, and to my city. So you see, the basic structure of Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is very simple, past, present, and future. However, it's not an easy passage to understand. This is probably in particular because there are three interpretive challenges that we'll need to deal with as we seek to understand God's words to the rebuilders here. The first interpretive challenge concerns God's statement in verses 6 and 7 that he will shake the heavens and the earth and all people. It's clear that this shaking refers to judgment. What's not so clear is when this shaking will occur. And the problem is made even more complex because that idea of shaking occurs again In verse 21 here in the same chapter, and we'll look at that next week. Now the second interpretive challenge is the meaning of this phrase, the desire of all nations. Some of your Bibles translate that phrase with capital letters. Do you see it? Some of your Bibles translate it the desired of all nations, as in the idea of the desired things of all nations. And they leave it in small letters. If you have a new American Standard Bible, that translates it, the wealth of all nations. And that's actually changing the words because the word wealth is not there. Now, don't get upset. I'm not picking on your translation. You'll see why this is like this in a little while. Some of your Bibles say that this person or thing, whatever the desire of all nations is, will come to Jerusalem... Others say that the nations will come to it or him. We'll see that the identity of this phrase, what it means, is closely linked to the concept of shaking and when that shaking will take place. Now, the last interpretive challenge is the referent of the phrase, this temple. Which temple is God talking about when he speaks of this temple in verses 7 and 9? Is it speaking of the second temple, which Zerubbabel and his companions would rebuild? Is it speaking of Herod's temple, which would essentially be a remodeling and an updating of that second temple? Or is it speaking of some future temple? We'll work through these interpretive hurdles as we go through the text. And I, I think you'll see that it will all come into clear focus once we get through them. Well, let's turn our attention now to the particulars of the text. Let's start with the first part of God's message in verses 1 through 3. We might label this part comparing today with yesterday. Listen as I read those verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this... Not in your eyes as nothing. Now, before we look at those details, let me just say something to avoid confusion. Do you notice that term remnant in verse two? See it there? When you see the word remnant in the Old Testament, it generally refers to the small portion of living Israelites who are actually believers, who are following the Lord. Now here the idea is the same, except the people that Haggai is speaking to are the remnant. They are the ones who had left Babylon, who had come back to Jerusalem because of their love for God, and who were there to rebuild the temple. So what I want you to avoid, I don't want you to be confused and think that Haggai is addressing some small portion of those people who came back to rebuild the temple. He's addressing them all And Haggai calls them, the remnant, to call attention to the fact that they are there because they love God and they want to serve him. Now, let's get back to the text. God asks three questions. The first question is this. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now, remember, when Haggai speaks this, this is the year 520 B.C., The temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C., 66 years earlier. A child who had been five years old when the temple of Solomon had been destroyed, that's probably about as young as you might remember, maybe a couple years younger than that, such a child would now be 71 years old. When Haggai speaks this question, when he voices it for God, I imagine that a few old women and men raise their hands and then God asks a second question through Haggai. He says, and how do you see it now? Now thoughts go through the minds of these old folks. But God doesn't wait for an answer. He continues with a third question. In comparison with it, is not this? in your eyes, as nothing? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Although Haggai doesn't record it, I imagine that the heads of the old folks were bobbing up and down in sad agreement. And I imagine that a number of tears were appearing on their cheeks as they did so. Why did God ask these embarrassing and even depressing questions. I think God did it because there was an elephant in the room that no one wanted to face. You see, the elephant in the room was the fact that no matter how hard these people worked, no matter how much of their limited wealth they would give, no matter how carefully they might fashion and carve and polish whatever stone and wood and silver and gold they had to work with, the temple that they were building would never approach the magnificence of Solomon's temple. And it was worse than that. When this temple that they are rebuilding will be finished, it would be finished in 516 B.C., the Holy of Holies would remain empty because the Ark of the Covenant had apparently been lost. Now, we know from our study several weeks ago that when the original tabernacle had been built, they brought in the tabernacle furniture, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, and various other articles. They placed them inside, and then in an unmistakable amazing miracle, the Shekinah glory of God began to shine from within that tabernacle. The same thing happened when those articles were moved into Solomon's new temple that replaced the tabernacle when Solomon's temple was dedicated. But nothing like that would happen with the second temple that Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people are building now. When it was dedicated four years after the date of the message that we are reading right now, in the year 516 B.C., nothing special or miraculous happened. Ezra chapter 6 records that dedication, and you can read it, and it's notable for the absence of anything miraculous. There's no mention of the temple furniture. There's no mention of the ark being brought in and no mention of the Shekinah glory. Clearly, at least in some ways, this temple that they were building could never rival or even match Solomon's temple. So why did God ask these three questions? I think God wanted this group of people, this remnant, this group of dedicated believers to face the fact that their temple would never be impressive, and yet he also wanted them to see that it was very, very important to him. It wasn't gold or silver or great architecture that God wanted. God wanted his people to put him first in their affections again. And building the temple was God's way of calling them to that commitment. This temple would serve its purpose in God's time within the sequence of the temples that he would provide. And though this was a day of small beginnings, God was saying something like this. Even what looks small in man's eyes is important if it is done out of love for me. And that idea leads us to the second part of God's message here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Listen as I read that in verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I like to call this part of the message practicing the presence of God. I know that's corny, but it's accurate. Once again, as God addresses the group, He speaks first to Zerubbabel, then to Joshua, and then to the common people. And His message is simple. Be strong and work, for I am with you. Now we saw last week that God had used those words, be strong, for I am with you, to encourage His people twice before. You remember when it was? He spoke them to Joshua, just before Israel undertook the conquest of the promised land. He spoke them to Solomon through King David just before Solomon began to build the temple. Now God speaks those words again to his people as they face another great task. Be strong and work, for I am with you. Here we have both a command and a promise. The command is be strong and work. The promise is, for I am with you. Now, we looked at those words, I am with you, last week, as we just noted. Let's give a little thought to the command. What exactly does God mean when he says, be strong? Well, back during my days in graduate school at Cornell, during my early 20s, when I was studying physics there. I had a classmate. He was another physics major. He was very unusual for a science student. He was built like a tank, big, strong guy. He loved to lift weights. He said to me, "Dave, you got to bulk up." <laughs> he took me to the gym. Set up a barbell on the bench and he said, Let's see you press that. And I got down on the bench and I got settled and I put my hands on the bar and I began to push. My face turned red, my pulse rate increased, and I groaned with effort. But no matter how hard I tried, no matter how hard I pushed, that bar never budged. My friend looked at me and he said, push, you can do it. And I pushed and I pushed and nothing happened. Now, later on, he told me that there were 250 pounds on that bar It wouldn't have helped if he had shouted be strong a hundred times and if he had used a megaphone. I couldn't do it. It wouldn't have helped if I'd been wearing one of those t-shirts that people wear today that says just do it. I simply didn't have the strength to lift that weight. No amount of urging, no amount of cheering, not even ridicule could have given me the power to do what my body was incapable of doing. When God said to the temple rebuilders, be strong and work, he wasn't saying, do what you can't do. The call for strength was a call for courage, for commitment, and for trust. God was saying to the builders, use what you have, your limited wealth, whatever skills you have, what energy and resources you have. It will be enough for the task, not because of your strength, but because I am with you. I don't expect you to match the accomplishments of the past. I don't expect you to reduplicate Solomon's temple. What I do expect you to do is to get to work and never to let the fear of your opponent's stop you again. I am with you. I am for you. I was with Moses when he led my people out of Egypt. I was with Joshua, and I gave him and his companions victory over the Canaanites, even though there was no way that they should have won. I was with Solomon. I enabled him to build a glorious house for my name. I gave all of these people success beyond their capabilities because they gave me what they had. And I am with you now. Nothing has changed. Do not fear. Build my house. And so now we come to the third part of God's message in verses 6 through 9. Listen as I read them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, And the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there are two things I'd like us to take note of as we start to consider these three verses. The first one is that this part of God's message begins with the word for. It tells us that God is giving us a reason for something that he's already said. He's giving the rebuilders a further encouragement to continue the task. Now, the second thing that I'd like you to notice is that all three of those interpretive difficulties that I mentioned earlier appear here in this section. The meaning of the phrase, I will shake the meaning of the phrase, the desire of all nations, and the referent, which temple God is speaking of when he says, this temple. Figuring out the meaning or the solution to these interpretive difficulties will be a little bit like a puzzle, but once we've done so, it's going to all fit into place. I think you'll see. Well, let's start by laying out the possibilities. Look at that phrase, I will shake. In verse 6, what does that mean? I think almost everybody agrees that it's a reference to judgment. If you've read through the book of Isaiah, you know that over and over again, God says, I will shake. And he's talking about judgment. It's almost the picture of God grabbing the surface of the earth and shaking it. Kind of like when I was a kid, I used to like to go up to an anthill and stomp on the ground next to it and get the ants upset. Of course, that was silly, but what God is speaking of is not silly at all. We know that the phrase, I will shake, refers to judgment. But what's not so clear is discerning when this judgment will occur and understanding how it's related to verses 21 and 22 in this chapter. Now, next week, we'll see that those latter verses speak of God's judgment associated with the second coming of Christ. The challenge here is to decide whether the shaking spoken of in verses 6 and 7 speaks of that same future event or whether it speaks of events associated with the first coming of Christ. Just about everybody agrees that it's got to be one of those two. Now, our second difficulty is the meaning of the phrase... The Desire of All Nations. Take a look in your Bibles. How many of you have that capitalized? Raise your hands. A lot of you do, okay? Um, It's tempting to look at what the text says. The Desire of All Nations will come and fill this temple with glory and conclude that it's referring to our Lord Jesus Christ at his first coming. Filling Herod's temple, which was really just a remodeling of the second temple, with glory by his personal presence. Many people think that that's what it's about, but I think that there are problems with that, and let me tell you why. I see three problems with that interpretation. They're linguistic, textual, and historical. Now, let's start with the linguistic problems. First of all, the Hebrew text can be read, the desired of all nations will come, or it can be read, they will come to the desired of all nations. It's a little ambiguous. However, the word to is not present in the text. So a more likely reading would be, the desired of all nations will come. And secondly, that verb will come is plural. It's plural. So the meaning is probably something like this. The desired things of all nations will come. What is going to come is not one, it's many. And if it's many, it's hard to argue that Christ is the one who's going to come because he's just one person. Now, the textual problem concerns the relationship between verse 7 and verse 8. Look at verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. That strongly suggests that the desired things of all nations that will come to Jerusalem is the wealth of the nations. Now, we don't have time to go there right now, but if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 60 and look look at verses 4 through 14, there's a long prophecy there of the future day in Christ's future millennial kingdom when the nations of the world, out of tribute and worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, will bring their wealth to him and to his temple in Jerusalem. That prediction fits what we're seeing here in Haggai, verses 7 and 8, perfectly. Now, there's also a historical problem with the idea that the desired of all nations is Christ coming to Herod's temple. And there are actually several historical problems. First, there was no shaking. There was no judgment that affected heaven and earth, the sea, and all nations when Christ came. Yes, the prince of this world was cast out. Yes, there was an earthquake while Christ hung on the cross. But the visible world in particular, outside of the very small locality of Jerusalem, continued on much as it had. There was no worldwide shaking. Now, if we understand the term shaking as it's used in Isaiah as a literal judgment involving physical suffering and death and miraculous events from the very hand of God, it's hard to argue that that shaking should not also be literal here in Haggai. Now, the second thing is there was no visible appearance of the Shekinah glory of God in Herod's temple at the first coming, although I know we could argue, and some have, that Christ's glory was there, but it was veiled from the eyes of unbelievers. Now, the third historical problem is that verse 9 tells us what the result will be of this arrival of the desired of all nations and the filling of the temple with glory. What does it say? It says there will be peace in this city, in Jerusalem. This is perhaps the biggest problem. Did peace come to the earth as a result of Christ's arrival during his first coming? It didn't, did it? Think about what Christ said in Luke chapter 19, on that day that he appeared in Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and the nation rejected him. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, and he said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from you. For the days will come, Upon you when your enemies shall build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you, you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. Christ was predicting the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And we know that the world has not been in peace and Jerusalem has not been in peace since his first coming. And I think that makes it very difficult to argue that what Haggai is speaking of here is Christ's first coming. So putting all these observations together, I would argue that the desire of all nations refers to the wealth of the nations that the Gentiles will bring to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his temple in Jerusalem during Christ's future millennial kingdom. And although I disagree with the choice of the New American Standard translators to use the phrase, the wealth of all nations, if you got an NASB Bible, listen to this carefully, I think they were right in a sense. They translate the words incorrectly. The word wealth isn't there. But they understand the idea correctly because the desired things of all nations that will come to Jerusalem is, in fact, the wealth of the Gentiles who will come and worship God in a temple that will sit on the very spot where these rebuilders are putting together what they thought was a very insignificant and very unimpressive temple. Now, that brings us to our last interpretive challenge, namely, which temple God is referring to when he says this temple in verses 7 and 9. To which temple is God referring? Well, I think we've answered it in looking at the first two difficulties. God calls this temple in verse 9. Do you notice it? He says this what? This latter temple. And that's an additional clue to its identity. I believe that the predictions of verses 6 through 9 concern the future millennial temple, which Ezekiel describes in in chapters 40 through 48 of his book. The temple that will stand when our Lord Jesus Christ is present here on earth following his second coming at the time that he reigns over the nation of Israel as king and over this earth as emperor. So now we can make a final comment on the meaning of verses 6 through 9. I think the message is really quite simple, and I'd like to paraphrase it for you. God says, A time is coming in which I will shake the earth and all of mankind in judgment. As a result, the nations will honor me by bringing me their wealth, and they will fill this latter temple of that day with my glory. That future temple will be more glorious than any other temple that has preceded it. And in that day when I manifest my glory on earth, my city, this city, Jerusalem, in which you, my people, are building a modest temple for me today, that city will finally live up to its name. Jerusalem will finally be the city of peace. And you know why it'll be the city of peace, don't you? Because the prince of peace will be here. Why did God make this prediction to the temple rebuilders? Did they really need to know that? Well, I think he did think that they needed to know it. I think he did it to encourage them. He gave it to remind them that the temple that they were building was part of his plan, a plan that would culminate with God fulfilling all of his promises to his people, Israel. The promise that they would be restored to his favor, the promise of the reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel, and the promise of a never-ending, fully righteous, absolutely glorious reign of the Messiah, the promised son of David whom we call the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just make a few comments in passing for those of you whom I may not have convinced. Those of you who are still convinced that that phrase, the desired of all nations, refers to Christ at his first coming. That is not an impossible interpretation. And there are many godly Bible students who hold to that view. I don't hold that view. But if it is true, we don't lose the force of the passage. This prophecy is an encouragement either way, isn't it? If it speaks of the future temple, it tells these people that their insignificant efforts are part of something that will lead to something wonderful. If it speaks of Christ's first coming then we have here in Haggai a prediction both of his first coming ministry and of his second coming ministry, both of which did involve glory. Whichever interpretation is correct, we can see that God encouraged the rebuilders by calling them to face the past, to trust and rely upon him in the present, and to be confident of his plans for the future. Now, that's God's message to the rebuilders. I'd like to, confu- to to not confuse, excuse me. Let me get a glass of water here. I don't want to confuse you. I want to conclude with an encouragement and some observations. Now my encouragement to you is this, and this is easy. I encourage you this week between now and next Sunday to read the rest of chapter two of Haggai and then go read Zechariah chapters three and four. You'll see that, don't do it now, you'll see that Zechariah was also called upon God to preach to these same people and that he would preach to them approximately a month after Haggai delivered the message that we just read. If you do that homework, you'll find out that what's going on here is very closely linked with what Zechariah had to say, and you'll see that God actually sent two prophets at the same time to encourage his people in this one task. Now, secondly, I'd like to say a few words about the desire for God's glory and God's vengeance. You know, we New Testament Christians tend to be ambivalent or at least a little nervous about the matter of God's vengeance. We gladly pray for, hope for, and seek for God's glory to be made evident in the world. But I think most of us are hesitant to pray for, to hope for, and to seek for God's vengeance to come to this world. I think that God's message to these rebuilders here includes a corrective to this attitude. And I want to discuss that corrective, but I also want to be careful as I do so. You see, as I read Haggai chapter 2, particularly verses 6 through 9, I'm getting a clear message, and the message is this, that God will be glorified through taking vengeance upon his enemies and by judging them, and by bringing them into submission to him. I'm not just talking about Christ defeating Satan on the cross. I'm not just talking about the eternal punishment of those who refuse to come to Christ for salvation. I'm talking about the people whom God says he will shake here in Haggai too those who will stand against God and against his Christ in the future days of the tribulation, those who will side with Satan and with Antichrist against the true Christ, who will experience the terrible judgments that will precede the return of our Lord to this planet. Those days will be days of vengeance. Terrible, Terrifying, overwhelming divine vengeance. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's wrong for us to anticipate those days with a certain measure of hope and even a sense of vindication and approval? Personally, I think not. God's enemies are our enemies. And those who refuse to leave the ranks of Satan and who stubbornly insist upon remaining at enmity with God justly deserve all that they will suffer under his divine hand of judgment. But it's here, exactly here, that we need caution and a very clear perspective. We, as blood-bought, formerly damned, Redeemed sinners need to keep in mind that we, too, were once God's enemies, don't we? It's true that God at times calls us to rejoice in the knowledge that he will judge. But at the same time, and indeed much more frequently in Scripture, God calls us to act as his agents in reaching out with the call of salvation and forgiveness To those who remain his enemies through faith in Jesus Christ. Now through Haggai, God called the remnant to be strong and work for I am with you. God has also called us to a great task and he's also promised to be with us in that task. Our task is what? The Great Commission. Our task is to call individuals out of the ranks of Satan and out of enmity toward God so that they may serve him now and escape his judgment in the future. I think we need to learn to hold intention, both the comforting knowledge that God will judge his enemies and our daily and continuing duty of proclaiming him in word and deed so that individuals who are now his enemies may become his children. The third thing that I'd like to look at is I think it's necessary and very important for us to recognize the unshakable faithfulness of God. Look once more again at Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. What does God say there? He says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when, I, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. What had God covenanted with his people when they came out of Egypt? He had said, in, a fact, in effect, You will be my people, and I will be your God. Now, a lot had happened since God had made that covenant with them, hadn't it? And it wasn't all good. God's people had fallen into terrible sin. God had judged them, and now they were living as subjects in a Gentile empire. It would have been easy for those people to say, God's through with us, to conclude that he had withdrawn his presence and his spirit and his help from them, and that he had cast them by the wayside. Now, turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 31. One of my absolute most favorite passages in all of Scripture. Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Judah in the last days of the southern kingdom before the Babylonians put the city under siege, conquered it, and destroyed it. The siege began in 588. It went on two years and finally was successful in penetrating the city in 586. When the siege began, the people trapped inside slowly began to starve. Their food ran out, their supplies ran out. Starvation set in, the people became weaker and weaker, and they knew, those who were willing to face the facts, that the Babylonians would come over that wall soon, that they would rape, kill, plunder, and destroy. They knew that the city would be stripped of its wealth and the temple would be stripped of its wealth. They knew. That many, many of them would die, and they knew, as the Babylonians always did, that they would take the survivors and make them slaves. In the very last days before the city fell, God sent a message to his people through Jeremiah, and I'd like to read that to you from verses 33 uh, 35, excuse me, through 37. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, can they? They cannot. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done says the Lord. Do you see what the message is? The message is no matter how badly you sin against me, I will never cut you off from being my people. I will never stop being your God. I will never forsake you. I will never allow you to be exterminated. I've said this before in this series and I have to say it again because God is saying it again. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. His faithfulness is unshakable and his word is sure. And when God said to the rebuilders in Haggai chapter 2, according to the word that I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, he meant it. Our God does not make promises lightly. And when he does, we can count on them. As the prophecy that we've just looked at in Haggai chapter 2 tells us, God will literally move heaven and earth in order to remain true to his unshakable promises. Now, for my last exhortation, I want to borrow some words from the prophecy of Zechariah which I hope you'll read between now and next Sunday. Zechariah, I'm sorry, Haggai was not the only prophet who came to encourage the temple rebuilders, as we said earlier. Zechariah also brought them a message. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord asks a question, this time through Zechariah. He says, Who has despised... The day of small beginnings. We might paraphrase that a little more strongly. Who among you dares to despise the day of small beginnings? Think about that question for a moment. Isn't this really what God was saying to the rebuilders in the passage that we looked at today? God said, face it, face the facts. What you are building will never rival Solomon's temple, which is now but a memory. But don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise the day of small beginnings because I value what you do according to the effort and sacrifice and devotion to me that it displays. What you do because you love me pleases me. It brings me glory, and it is part of my plan, a plan that will culminate in my destroying my enemies and establishing my people in blessing forever. You are part of my plan, and your part in that plan is precious to me. If your part seems small, don't despise it. Don't despise the day of small beginnings, because what I will accomplish in your future begins with your efforts now. Now, I offer you that same exhortation because I think it's just as appropriate now as it was to those folks who were rebuilding that temple. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't compare your gifts or your talents or your resources or your ministry with those of the past or those of others and say, mine will never compare. God wants you to offer what you have to offer and to do so gladly, generously, And confidently, God will use it to bring the day of small beginnings to a day of great conclusions. Let's pray. Father, it hurts sometimes to look at ourselves and to realize that we, in many ways, are ants compared to the spiritual giants of the past. At least that's how it looks to us. It's so easy to say that there are others who can do this better, who have done it better, and who will do it better than I ever can, more than we ever can. Father, deliver us from the error of that thinking. Grant that we may look at our day and recognize it perhaps as a time of small beginnings but also recognize that you ordained this day and you ordained us and everything that we have to offer you as part of the sequence of your plan that will culminate in all the good that you will bring to pass. Encourage us by this, Father. Protect us from discouragement and use what we have to offer for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.